why, why he did that. Okay, and we're going to talk about that next week. But that's a good example. If you go to LDS.org and you're going to look up essays, and there's, there's an essay on uh, same sex, there's an essay on mother in heaven, there's an essay on priesthood and women, there, and there's one on the different versions of the first vision, there's one on Joseph Smith and polygamy. They're doing a great job and they're putting this out there. For if we want to know kind of where we stand, here's where we stand. They've asked the uh, seminary CES all the instructors to be experts. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, if you're teaching, you need to be an expert on those essays. You really should. Because they are good and they're well researched. Uh, the one on Mother in Heaven has like 50, 50 uh, citations that they're using. It's, wow. They've, they've done a great job on this. Okay. So... So again, the challenge is for this for this uh, semester, obviously, is that we're going to try and uh, move forward here. Um, now, why do I think all this is important? I saw this online the other day, and it just it just jumped out at me, and, and my heart sank a bit because I think this is one of the reasons why we have to be so current with what we've got going. This lady says, I have been, I've been pondering something that was said in sacrament meeting last week. The speaker was a returned missionary, very young and seemed sweet and sincere. She said, Heavenly Father loves you and knows exactly what you need to be happy. My thought was, I'm not so sure. I'm in a place in my life where literally every family relationship I have is struggling. My husband has gone through some tough medical issues. My daughter is clear in her dislike and disdain of me. One of my sons absolutely crashed and burned his first year of college and only talks to me once in a while. Another son is struggling in different ways. Youngest is turning out to be our most difficult teenager. But when I hear something like that at church, I think, really? This is how God knows me? If he knew me, he would know that none of this is bringing me happiness. <laughs> right? I don't know if I have a question, really. Maybe I'm just wondering how to reconcile this hurt with God's love. Or maybe it's this. How do you feel God's love when it seems like everything is falling apart? Now, what we're going to talk about today, the, the, uh, as in the great apostasy, what we're going to, what we're going to get to is, is that for as damaging as, as was the loss of the authority and the loss of temple ordinances in the great apostasy, almost equally as damning, I believe, was the, the loss of the understanding of the nature of God. His true nature, rather than the nature that was painted by whatever group was trying to somehow comprehend God without some of the inspiration they'd had in the past. It was his nature that was truly lost. And then it trickles down to us where if we don't understand his nature, we are lost. We are really fallen. Okay? Okay, so what was lost? If we look in First Nephi 13, Nephi's going to say, and after they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews to the Gentiles, speaking of the, the records of the Bible, thou seest the formation of a great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other church churches. Now, do we think that was the Catholic Church? No. No. Yeah, I know. Mormon doctrine said that. Uh, as did uh, Marvelous Work and a Wonder said that. It, by the time the Catholic Church got it, it had happened already. Great and abominable church are those that actively work to pull out true doctrine. And that can happen in any church. Okay? For behold... They have taken away the gospel of the Lamb, and listen close, many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants. Now, there's, there's two things that have been taken away. First of all, what's been taken away? Plain and precious. What also is taken away? Covenants. 
sometimes in our I'm trying to understand and teach the apostasy we're heavy on the covenant part we lost the temple rights the authority the priesthood the keys yes we did but but I want to really kind of focus a little bit today on the plain and precious those things that were taken off okay that was probably me is that blurping it says wait a minute where did you go you can figure out how to make that thing turn off. Oh, sure. That would be great. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about how it got lost. And to do that, we're going to do just a little bit of... Uh, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, kind of to next week, but, I, but this is a background. So let's hop over for just a second to Joseph Smith's history. which is in the Pearl of Great Price. And let's go down to, I think it's seasick. Okay. Joseph Smith writes in, in uh, the kind of the 1838 version, which became the history, my object of going to inquire the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which one to join. No sooner I gained possession of myself, I asked the personages which sect was right. 19. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that what? The creeds were an abomination. Okay? What's a creed? It's a statement of belief. Okay? We tend to see creed as like a group of people. In this context, no, a creed is a statement that was made. And there were a number, as the apostasy rolled along, there were a number of creeds and statements that defined who God was and how he operates. And it's where the information and who is writing the creed comes from that made those creeds such an abomination. Sometimes people have looked at this and say, well, if, if this is a Catholic creed, then he's saying Catholics are an abomination. No. no, he's not saying that at all. He's just saying the creed, the Nicene Creed, for instance, uh, the um, Westminster Confessions, the uh, on and on. There's a number of these that we're going to run into that turned out to be an abomination, meaning that they were, a, they, they were taking away from the true nature of God. Yeah? Um, if you will go out onto the internet, and I can't tell you which, which URL to use to go out there, but you can look at what different uh, religions subscribe uh, to. Yeah. And it will tell you what's free. Right. Each one of them, if they subscribe to a free. What free it is to Yeah, and I'm going to quote from one of them in just a second. Yeah. So, with the articles of faith, be a creed. I think that's a great point. Uh, we, do we have a creed? The closest we come to a creed, right, would be the Articles of Faith, most likely. The what? Living Christ. Yeah, the Living Christ. Yeah. Proclamation on the family would be pretty close to as creedal as we get. But because of that, sometimes you'll hear a phrase, and I'll use this from time to time. We'll talk about creedal Christianity. And it is the Christianity of the creeds. It's the ones that draw from these kind of things uh, to, as a statement of what it is that they believe. Okay, now, the, the Lord said the creeds are an abomination in sight, that their professors were all corrupt. Now, those professors back then, I think by the time those creeds are rolling to the, to the, the people that are preaching in tents in Palmyra in the burned out district at the time of Joseph Smith, they are the inheritors of hundreds of years of tradition getting them to that point. These guys aren't corrupt, but they just don't have all the information by the time they get to that point. Okay? But this is sometimes seen as an attack on other churches, and, and it's really not. Or an attack on their truth. There's beautiful, wonderful truth in every church that I'm looking at, and I learn things from all churches. Uh, and we get into, caught in that when we say we are the one true church, meaning 
everybody else's faults. That's not true. That's not right. It's not fair, and it's not true. Because so much of Christianity, we we owe an incredible debt of gratitude to Constantine and to the Catholic Church that preserved Christianity through the centuries. Christianity. How many people? How many monks? How many? Good people just tried to live and become better people by, by adhering close to the Catholic Church. Wow. Okay? So, but he's saying their, their hearts were far from me. They teach... Now listen closely, because this is what we're about to talk about. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men. They teach as doctrine the commandments of men. So the commandments of men become doctrine. That's why they're corrupt. They teach as doctrine the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And you're going to think that the power thereof is priesthood. That's sort of true, and a lot not. Because the true nature of God is where the power of godliness really comes. Does that, does that make sense so far? Okay. Alright. So that's it. Now, it is, he's, he's, by the way, he's also... We talked about, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about uh, prophet linking and that you go to other prophets and you get the whole picture. The Lord is now going to prophet link in talking to Joseph Smith to fill in the rest of the picture. Yeah. I just like to call attention to the word they. They draw near to me. Yeah. He's talking about the professors. Yeah. Previously, he's not talking about the ministers. I believe that's true. I, I believe that that's true because they they're again they're just the inheritors of what their what their belief system is, and we're going back to we're going to go back to 300 A.D. We're going to go back to 1000 A.D. to the Great Schism, and and we're going to and Augustine in 400 is going to be more powerful than you have any idea. Yeah. Yeah, I, that occurred to me too because really the word there, professor, doesn't mean someone who's learned it in the gospel. That's right, it's someone who professes. Yeah, great, great point. Thanks. All right, so just as a reminder, oh, okay. Um, let me hop over. I'm going to link to Isaiah 29 13 because the Lord's quoting from Isaiah. And by the way, Isaiah 29 is the one that we venerate as Latter-day Saints because this is about the sealed book and I cannot read it, all that stuff, okay? Then he's going to say, say, Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as this, this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips they honor me, uh, they have removed their heart and have removed their heart far from me. Their fear towards me is taught by the precept of man. So that's why I say this nature of God, you can fix it. I'll try. You go, girl. Okay. This is the person that works my uh, DVD player in my office. Please put on a movie for these kids. I can't figure out the DVD. I would put on a movie, but Wendy's not here yet to turn on the DVD, and I can't figure this thing out. So you'll have to wait and stare at the TV till she comes. Therefore, behold, I, because the fear towards me is taught by the precept of men, there was introduced very early into these creeds a fear of God for all, all the right reasons, but a fear of God that created this jealous, angry, vengeful Heavenly Father who was bent on their destruction. If Jesus couldn't come in and rescue him because of sinful mankind was messing it up so badly. So the fear of me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. Even the marvelous work and a wonder. Okay? So that's the background when we look at the history. Okay? Now, so it makes sense then if we're going to talk about the restoration... We have to begin with where the truths were lost. Now, you have to remember that as the in the 
right after the apostles are dying out, and they're dying out in in uh, oh, 70 A.D. and 80 and 85, we think that uh, we think that Paul and Peter were uh, were killed in Rome uh, in the gladiator area, right between the Colosseum and the old town. There's a big gladiator area. We think that's where Paul and Peter were killed there, about 85 A.D. Um, and and uh, Matthew was supposedly in the east, and John had gone to Ephesus, and they were just spreading out, and they were setting up these churches all over the place, but they, in disparate places based on their the things going on in those cities. Okay, so they're all out there, and then and then as the the apostles die off, now you have bishops in each one of these areas doing the best they can under local conditions. These bishops were trying to somehow keep their people alive as well. Uh, when we're walking, uh, I'll tell you about Ephesus in a second. Um, so, let me give you an example of a couple of those. In Ephesus, for instance, this is just uh, just down the coast a little bit from uh, in, uh, Istanbul, which was Constantinople. Okay. In in uh, Ephesus, uh, I don't know if you can see that picture very well. Tell to you, I'm gonna. It's a stretch, I think. Worked. Okay. Okay. So, in Ephesus, where we think John went, and, and history says that the history in Ephesus says that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, died there. They have a, uh, a little house off there that you can see where you go. We, the tradition is, and the Pope went there and everything to say, we think this is where Mary died, brought by John the Beloved to come to Ephesus. Okay? Um, now, see people kind of walking down the streets of Ephesus. Uh, the streets underneath Ephesus were uh, both heated and cooled. They had uh, water running underneath there that, uh, and then covering over the top of it. Uh, so highly advanced uh, people in, in Ephesus. Uh, I'll get back to Corinth in a sec. Okay. Uh, remember that uh, we read about Ephesus. Paul goes to Ephesus and starts preaching Christ. And what happens? Well, the thing about Ephesus is that one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, massive, massive temple to Artemis, Diana, um, the goddess, uh, was at Ephesus. And people would come from all over, do pilgrimages to Ephesus to see the, 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 the temple of Artemis. And they would create little figurines to uh, Diana, and, and that's one of them. Um, and you can see kind of the, the multi-mammary glands on there because she was so fertile. Okay? And, and when Paul starts preaching again, uh, preaching Christ, that threatens everybody's commercial business in Ephesus. Okay, so there was a great pushback uh, on that. Um, Wendy, you can turn the light, the one light on, up for a little bit. Okay, now there is uh, not far. If you go all the way down to the end of this path. Hang a little right. There's a little area out there where the business plaza was. And that's where you see some markings in the stones where the Christians would hold, made marks that they could come and stand there and other Christians would recognize them because the Christians had to go underground. Because you were going to be heavily persecuted uh, in Ephesus if you, were, if you were preaching Christ. Okay? So... In Ephesus, when the bishop there is trying to somehow keep the church underground, but he's pushing back against a highly educated, highly civilized, highly uh, angry group, then Christianity is very much under siege in Ephesus. Corinth... Uh, is, is, is this uh, seaport, right? Uh, it, it would be a little bit like New York or uh, um, 
New Orleans or something like that where there's a lot of commerce coming through, very rich, very commercial. Um, and again, up the top there, I've got, I took a picture of, uh, again, Diana shows up again there. They venerate uh, Diana there, so they're worshiping this, this uh, goddess, Diana. Uh, but on, on the other, just around the corner from her, uh, you can see the, the, the menorah because there was a heavy Jewish population in Corinth. Now, here's the, the, so here's the problem that the churches were running into. If we're trying to preserve Christianity, on one group, on one side you have the Greeks with Diana. We believe in a lot of gods. But you're preaching a, a heavenly father. And by the way, we also know that you Christians, listen close, you Christians have some of the Jewish philosophy, and that is that heavenly father had a wife by the name of Mashera. So we're kind of into that. That's, that's cool. But we don't believe in any physical beings at all. We're into spirituality and, and all that. Now, on the other side, you have the Jews who are saying, Nope, under Josiah we dumped all of that Asherah stuff. We believe in how many gods? One, One God. One God we believe in. We're monotheistic, dang it. And that's what the Deuteron that's what we do in the Shema every week when we pray, we're talking about, you know, one God is God, that's him. Okay? And Christians are listen closely. Christians we are angry with because they are polytheistic. Christians believe in more than one God. There's a God the Father, there's God the Son, there's a God the Spirit. They believe in more than one God. As Jews, we're offended by that you guys are pagan. Christians are pagan because they have more than one God. That's a real problem to us and we will push back as Jews. The Greeks are going, well, we like the more than one God thing, but we don't like the physical being of a God. You guys, you Christians believe he's physical and separate. We don't like that. We think it's all spiritual and we're enlightened because we're Greeks. So we don't like the Christians because he's physical. The Jews don't like the Christians because there's more than one God. Can you see the underpinnings for the great compromise that's coming? How do you come up with a God that is not necessarily physical, but he is three, but he's one? You come up with the great compromise, which is what? The Nicene Creed. You're going to have a God that is multiple, but he's not. And he, is, and he lived on earth, but now he doesn't have a body. So it's like the great, it's like politicians put this thing together. You know, if you're a politician, what's your favorite color? Plaid. <laughs> I don't want to offend the blue people. I'm a red, and I like the red and the blue and the yellow too. That's good too. Okay? So the battle there in Corinth, um, and there's a right next to the, the by the way, those are Corinthian uh, pillars, that's where Corinthian pillars started all over the world. We have Corinthian pillars, that's where they started in Corinth. Uh, Paul preached just right over next to that, trying to plead his case, don't throw me out. Um, but, but now the local bishop in Corinth has to start to find a way to soften it. We're not quite sure how to explain all the ones. We haven't, the Nicene Creed doesn't come along for another hundred years, so we're still having to kind of explain. Okay, questions so far? So Ephesus has got their problems. Corinth has their problems. Okay, now we've got Rome, or uh, Athens. In the middle there is Mars Hill. I want you to turn that. Okay. Mars Hill on top. And uh, we're not sure what structure was on top of Mars Hill when Paul went to preach there. But the problem there is that they liked all kinds of gods. So we're interested in all of that. And then they also had a pillar to, to what? The unknown god. And that's where we get this wonderful speech by Paul to the, to the people in Athens. You know, your men are too superstitious. You have a, an unknown God. He whom ye ignorantly worship, declare I unto you. Let me tell you about the unknown God. But the problem there was they, believe, they believed everything. And so Christians were kind of pagan. 
How do you gain a footing if you're just a pagan? Why? Because you're just like us. You believe in all these gods. Keep hearing over and over. The Christians before 300 AD believed in a multiplicity of gods. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They did. All of our writings tell us that. <coughs> okay, now. Yeah, you can turn this up. Okay. Now, I just wanted to share this one with you. This is from AD 112. Gives you an idea of what was going on. This is from the local procurator to Emperor Trajan. Um, Trajan you see all over Ephesus. Uh, he was a busy guy and a, a built, he built a lot. Now this is the actual letter. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Uh, those who denied that they had, were or had been Christians when they invoked the words dictated to me offered prayer with incense and wine to your image. One of the tests that they had for Christians in 112 AD was we're going to make you bow down to you, the image of Trajan, and drink wine, like a sacramental wine to Trajan. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll refuse. And then we'll kill you. <laughs> but if you'll bow down to it, then we have to figure out what we're doing here. So he's going to say, So I, I ordered it to be brought for this purpose with the statues of the gods, and moreover, cursed Christ. So you've got to curse Christ as part of this thing. None of which those who, who were really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do so. These, I thought, should be discharged. Okay, the ones that were in front of him. Why? Because named by the informer, so they got these informer going around, who's the secret Christians around here? <laughs> Who are these guys? And then declared that they had been Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but ceased to be some three years before, others years, some as many as 20 years before, they all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. That get, so, where did the creeds come from? It's trying to balance, how do we hide the Christians? How do we deal with all of this? And how do we start to mold our image into those that are going to survive? Okay? So, let me do this for a sec here. Make sure that I'm doing animation. Don't mind me. I'm just you know correcting here on the side on the slide here. Engines fix. Wipe it. Very nice. Okay, so now let's do slideshow. Ah. You saw nothing. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Pay no attention to the man behind the screen. Okay, so out of that, yeah. Who wrote that letter? Uh, I actually took his name out. I had his. It was a. It was a local procurator, and I think he was in Judea. To Trajan. Okay. So out of this comes the creeds. Now. This is the, uh, this is the, the this church. Uh, Wendy, why don't you turn that light off for just a sec? Okay, so you can see a little bit better. This is the church in Constantinople, in Istanbul, the Hagia Sophia, meaning the house of wisdom. Okay, um, see how big the dome is there from the, you see the little people on the bottom all the way up to the top of the dome. Uh, when the when the temple of uh, was was torn down in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, the pillars that that uh, held that temple up were turned on their side, and they were brought to Istanbul, and they are and they they are as tall as that as the basilica thing there. Okay, there's several of them all the way from Ephesus that are in there, massive pillars. Okay, but this is where Constantine was. Okay. This, this was his church, uh, even though you can actually see Islamic writing uh, up there because it was taken over as a mosque. But this was, this was Constantine's church. The basilica is as big as the one in uh, St. Paul's in Rome. Yeah? Who exactly was Constantine? Good 
question. Thank you for that. The Roman Empire for a while has its center in Istanbul, in Constantinople. He was now the, the Roman Empire emperor. Okay? And what he did, and, it, and there's always been a number of questions why he did it, but for whatever reason, there comes a point at which Constantine says, rather than fight the Christians who, keep, who seem to keep growing, we're going to flip it and make, make Christianity the, the uh, Roman religion. We're going to step away from all of our pagan days. We're going to become Christian. The belief is his mother had joined the church and that he then flipped the whole thing. Okay? Now, here's the problem that Constantine had. So now, how do I know who believes what? Under Roman stuff, we knew what everybody believed. But among Christians, we're not sure because they keep it's, it's changing, it's deteriorating. They're taking on the local flavor. How do we know what we believe? There's no correlation committee. So we're going to bring together all the we're going to bring together all the bishops to try and have a decision on a number of things and we're going to start with the nature of God. What does God look like? How does he operate? And we're going to bring together all these bishops together and we're going to have this confab to and we're going to write up a declaration of what we believe. Now, who would you guess of all the bishops, uh, bishops of all these areas, who would have possibly survived all of the persecutions, the, you know, all that? Who might have survived? The what? The Bishop of Rome. Yeah, well, well, Bishop of Rome is just one of them. By the way, I don't think he's here. What, well, what year is this? 325, I think. Yeah. Okay. If you're if you are a bishop that is staunchly anti-Greek or anti-Jewish and you're very public about it, are you going to survive all the persecution? No. What if you're a bishop that is kind of you like Greek stuff and the and 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 all that kind of stuff and you're just kind of gushing in with the local beliefs. You're going to survive. So guess who showed up? For, for this, this conversation with Constantine. All the pro-Greek bishops. Guess who didn't show up? <laughs> Those that were very anti-Greek. So the pro-Greek guys show up, they form the Nicene Creed, and they come up with the Great Compromise, which is, yeah, we do believe in three gods, but <coughs> they're really one god, but they're really three gods. And, God, and Jesus was here in the flesh, but God is really what? He's really a spirit who came in the flesh. We're not sure what happened to the body after he was in the flesh, but really God is a spirit and we must worship him in spirit. And Jesus, and Jesus became the, the, the mediator, the, the, the one we talked to, except that the Father is, is uh, in the Greek form, the gap between God and man was so huge. He was, he was a spirit, he's untouchable, he's a mystery, we don't understand him, so what does that do for man? Reduces him down to here, so we're going to create this gap. This is where it starts in 300. He has no body, parts, or passions. He has bod no bodies, parts, and what? No passions. Passions is the big deal. Yeah. He if he has no passion, then no love. No, you know, other than jealousy, I'm a jealous God and I want to, you're going to sing praises to me, but other than the jealousy thing, I'm above the whole fray. And sits on the top of a topless throne, is everywhere but nowhere. Yeah, that's kind of that, that's the great compromise. Okay, how are you going to do that? Okay, so we get, uh, so various beliefs hardened into creedal statements, the Nicene Creed in the third century. Then we get St. Augustine. Augustine, uh, born late, uh, like 380, 370, something like that. Anyway, he gets to about 420. He's become a bishop. Uh, in his early days, he's believing what was 
Uh, man, we're running out of time faster than I thought. Um, he is believing what uh, what uh, the early Christian fathers like Origen and, and those, we're going to talk about them in a minute, who believed in, surprise, surprise, a pre-existence, uh, separate gods, uh, that God had a physical body, that the fall of man was really a good thing, because the early Christian fathers in the first century believed all of that. It gets to Augustine, and Augustine, about halfway through his studies, gets to Plato. And when he hits Plato, it goes bad. Not Plato like the Play-Doh. <laughs> Plato, like the Greek philosopher, who's into the, immer, uh, the immaterial God, the, the God that is untouchable, and everything. And Augustine turns everything on its head. And so much of what Catholic and even Protestant people believe now is still heavily influenced by St. Augustine. Because from St. Augustine came the first indication of original sin. That what Adam did was bad, bad, bad. And I'll, and I'll read why in just a second. But St. Augustine changes the whole thing. And he is incredibly uh, influential in the effort to protect God. He's not like, a, like an evil guy. He just wants to protect God and what he puts into play by mixing Greek, by uh, Plato and Socrates and stuff like that really, really sends this thing spinning. Okay? So the creeds blend with Plato. And then ultimately then we get to the great schism. Now you have a bit of a power play going on. You have all these bishops. Rome is growing ever more powerful. The, uh, every, you have all these bishops in Ephesus and Algeria and, and Athens, and they're all believing that. But the guy in Rome is claiming one thing that none of the other bishops can claim, and that's what? Lineage to Peter. My lineage to Peter trumps your stuff. And, and the great schism starts on a little thing like, should we hold Easter and Passover on the same weekend? It was really where the great schism started. It was something relatively minor. But the, but the bishop in Rome as, asserts his, his authority. You guys need to do it my way. The other bishops, especially in the east, Ephesus, Corinth, all those guys go, nope, sorry. You're, the bishop in Rome is no better than we are. We, we have a right to choose. He goes, no, you do it my way. They go, nope, we won't. So the bishop in Rome does what? Excommunicates all those guys. And the guys in, in, in the eastern part go, you can't excommunicate us. We'll excommunicate you. <laughs> and they did. So then we get the great schism. And here comes the Greek Orthodox on one side. And the Western uh, Christianity, which is Roman Catholicism, comes off of that. And now we get the great schism. So much of what we know about the early church in the first couple of centuries is actually coming more from the Eastern Orthodox because uh, they, were, they were earlier, they were sooner, and it took them a little longer to apostatize. Than the wet, under Roman influence, Augustine, and then it, it, it apostatized pretty fast. So, Questions on all that so far? Yeah, great history lesson, right? Yeah. The the Coptic Egyptians? It does. The Eastern, yes, they are the Eastern Coptics, and again, they are younger. They're they're older. They they were. They just it, the, the apostasy hit them later. So part of what, how we know what the early Christians believed in the first couple of centuries, we actually get more from Eastern Orthodox teachings and thought. Uh, Polycarp and, and Origen and uh, Irenaeus and those guys were all Eastern and from them we know what the early Christians believed. Now, that's important because one of the things that we tend to look at when we talk about the great apostasy was it's like the apostles lived, they died, and it was done. <laughs> we went from it's the, it's the gospel of Christ to up, oh, they turned into Catholics and the lights went out right away. And it's just not true. We're talking about 
Remember, Constantine, it, when we get to the Nicene Creed, how long has it been since Christ died? Like 350 years. This is centuries of great people and Christians and believers, and it's just this slow twisting and turning and accommodating the local traditions and all that. It's this slow process. Yeah, Lori? I would have to say, you might. I'll let you know if you're ahead of me, because then you'll spoil my whole thing. Because I was just thinking this is exactly what we've done in our church culture by including all of these. Next week. Things. Ne 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 next week. <laughs> yes, you are. No, but but things but things kind of twisted in there. This we have Protestantism that starts to kick in when we start to see. Uh, that's why I, th this lady that I started with the quote here. That's Protestant. It's very Protestant, and but it's entered into our culture. Okay. All right. Not that Protestant is bad. It's just doesn't have a full understanding of of the full uh, mercy of God. Okay, just doesn't. Yeah. Well, let's go there in here. You said earlier that we owed a lot to the Catholic Church. Oh, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What if? What do you think would have happened if all the early Christians had never wavered from the things the apostles taught them? I mean, even though they're being killed and everything, how would they have survived? Would the church have survived as well as it did? The great question. She says, if if uh, if the Christians of the early years, under before Constantine, had not had adapted then would Christianity have survived? Well, no, because they'd be dead. <laughs> so, so part of our debt to those early Christians was that they found a way to keep a form of Christianity alive going forward. Okay? Yeah? Um, Protestantism isn't really... A further corruption as much as it was an attempt to return. It was. The original Christianity, though Martin Luther wasn't set apart to be a prophet. Do you know, in a scary sort of way, this is actually a good example, and I don't want to go too far into this, but in the effort, in, in, in the effort of, of Luther and Calvin and those guys to kind of reform Catholicism and push back against the abuses they thought they saw in there, and we're going to put up the, the 93 treatises on the Wittenberg door and say, here's what we don't like about Catholicism. Here it is. Okay? So we're going to we're going to take care of a number of those things. In a number of ways, they, in some ways they were a step forward. And in a number of ways they were a step backwards. Because of, of the God that they created in that effort to push back against Catholicism. And, and, and maybe we'll talk about that. Wow, we got 20 minutes. I thought I would run out of time. <laughs> okay. Tell you what, we'll start... We'll get as far as we can. So, if we're taking all of this, I, I want to just throw out, here's a couple of the, these are the plain and precious truths that I believe were lost during the, during the slow apostasy, the slow rolling apostasy that happened over the centuries. One of which is the nature of God. Aramaeus, or, or Erasmus, pardon me, first century. No one should despair of pardon from a God by nature most merciful. He believed in a very, very merciful God, as did most of the Christians coming out of that first century. Martin Luther said, Erasmus was without Christ, without the Spirit, because God foresees purposes and does all things according to his immutable, eternal, and infallible will. God is not merciful, he is above mercy. Remember, he's without passions. He see, he's, in other words, Martin Luther, in that effort to push back against Calvin or against Catholicism created a God that was even more removed from mankind. 
And what he didn't do, his, his, the further reformers did. People like Jonathan Edwards and the spider on the string over the fire and by his good pleasure he may drop you in. It's the angry, vengeful God. Yes, that just scared the crud out of everybody. Okay? In fact, in fact let, let, let me show you how it would do. This is from an 18th century uh, school book in England. This is a poem that they would oftentimes memorize. Okay? The writer agonized over the vast uncertainty I am struggling with, the, with the force and size of my apprehensions. Here's my fears. What tongue can utter the anguish of a soul suspended between the extremes of infinite joy or eternal misery? I tremble and shudder. I'm getting, and, and tell me, gosh, tell me Mormons we haven't done this. I'm going to get to judgment day and I'm going to stand before the bar of God and now it's all going to be known. Did I make the grade or not? And what happens in the next few moments, God's going to tell me whether I make the celestial kingdom or I'm, I'm separated from my family forever in the terrestrial kingdom because I didn't make it. And I will know at, that, at the judgment bar of God that moment that the gavel falls. Where did I go? That's where this comes from. It's Protestant. Meaning that it was this, this belief that came that God was going to do this great separation moment. Sheeps, goats, good, bad. I don't know if anybody's watched on Netflix The Good Place. Anybody watch The Good Place? <laughs> you got to watch The Good Place. Uh, on Netflix it's about people that have gone after, after death to The Good Place. As opposed to going to the bad place. <laughs> and, they, and they start off by saying, how did you get to the good place? Well, every act you did, feeding orphans, you know, cutting them off in traffic, we were giving you a point for every one of those things you did. <laughs> and, and, and you didn't think anybody was watching, but we were. And we added them all up. And when you died, only the cream de la cream gets to go to the good place. It's all wonderful people who look for landmines in, in Iraq. <laughs> and the bad people who said, who's in the bad place? Well, all the presidents except Lincoln. <laughs> you know, there's the good place and the bad place. Okay? What, what's happening in the bad place? I don't know. Uh, we can give you an audio of the stuff in the bad place. Really? Okay, here's the five second version. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> so we have this we have this view of it's on one side or the other, okay? Uh, and what has been restored is that ain't it. That's the beautiful part. What that's what I've been trying to say, I guess, over the last few weeks. We do not believe we do not understand as Mormons what a grand vision we bring to the Christian table how much more magnificent and loving and merciful even beyond uh, the, the, the battle in Christianity looks something like this um, traditional Christianity creedal Christianity the, the more formal churches like when I was in, on my mission in, in church of, in England <clears throat> what you got was uh, the, the, they would explain if you're a member of the church of England you know what you can do high church medium church or low church. If you're in the Church of England, high church is like Catholic light. It's like Catholicism without the Pope. And it's going to, be, it's going to look much more like a mass. And it's just very, okay? And low church is like evangelical, hang out in green jeans, strum guitars, and sing about Jesus kind of thing. But that's still Church of England. So we're going to we have high church and low church, and you can choose. Okay, here's the interesting thing about this. Under high church uh, and the traditional churches, God is without body parts and passion, and he's kind of way out of here. Jesus is the advocate, but he is so far up there, who can talk to Jesus and plead our case? We can't do it, we're ants. Statues. So who is it? Saints. It's the saints. Oh, I can't do it, but St. Francis will do it for me, and St. Augustine will do it for me, and because they, they are more perfect, and they can talk a language and that we're not, because we're not that close to God. We are just down here. We, they create this massive space. 
Protestantism and then moving more into kind of the Antibaptists and more into um, uh, kind of evangelical stuff says, no, we don't want to make God way up here. We'll bring him right down to here. God is a friend. He is in my heart. I'm going to trust Jesus. He's with me. Um, in fact, I saw a video the other day. It showed uh, these guys were playing basketball and Jesus was playing basketball with them. It's just like, he is one of us. And so it's like, instead of taking God here, we've got God here. He's on our plane. He's, he's with us. He's, I'm going to accept him into my heart. He's a, got Jesus my friend. Okay? Guess what we do in, in, in Mormonism? Both. It isn't, it, it, it's not just the Savior who's our elder brother here, but it's also the magnificence of God up here, except that we've moved mankind way up here with the divine spark. We do both. The nat- our understanding of the nature of God is far more expansive and beautiful than we even give ourselves credit because we're so used to doing it. And we have so much to offer to traditional Christianity. Yeah. And one of the briefs that people continually say is that you guys believe that you can become gods. Yeah. And, and theosis, how, it's called. How dare you yeah. think that you could be at the same level as God? Because God is like. Right. Yeah, like you said, right? And and we are, you know, mere mortals. Hang, hang on, to, hang on to that idea because I think I've got this next. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, if we want to contrast that, go read Moses seven about the weeping God, and you and you tell me whether whether we 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 still venerate him. We do, but he weeps with us as well. Yeah. Little discussion we had in gospel doctrine yesterday. And man, did I have a hard time shutting up. <laughs> oh, uh, now, because here's the problem. If, if, if creedal Christianity is going to place God so untouchable, now we have to we create the gulf by also making man really bad. So then they... they and, and it starts with who? Adam. Now... Early Christians, the first couple of centuries, knew of the war in heaven and they knew of uh, pre-existence and taught it. Origin especially, the uh, uh, early Christian father who taught it a lot and then when Augustine got to reading, in the early days Augustine believed Origin about all of that when he got Platoized, they declared Origin a heretic and they burned his writings. So we have very little of origin, even though he was uh, like 175 AD. Okay? But um, in that process then, you've got to you've got to go after so grace under in origin's mind, where does grace first show up? Where does the atonement first begin? Preexistence. It happens in the council of Heaven. The Book of Mormon gives us hints that the atonement was used often by us in the pre-existence. Alma 13 talks about that. Now, remove the, remove the pre-existence, remove all of that, and where does grace have to show up? In the Garden of Eden. Why? Because Adam and Eve messed things up. Okay? It wasn't a transition, it wasn't a transgression, it was what? Sin. Little sin, small s, big sin. Capital S. Huge. Huge sin. Okay? So I wanted to make sure, so I actually went out to uh, the Catholic Catechism just to give an idea. So this is as of this week. <laughs> okay? Here's what here's what it says. Man tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart. And abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience towards God and lack of trust in his goodness. Oh wait, it gets better. 
Okay? And this ought to, and see how this resonates with us as Latter-day Saints. In that sin, man preferred himself to God. This is the hubris of man. It's believing that he could become God and might be godlike. Okay? And by that very act scorned God. He chose himself over and against God <coughs> and against the requirements of his creaturely status and therefore against his own good. Wow. That's original sin. And from Augustine forward, 400 A.D., this is what creedal Christianity bought into. Adam's original sin. So if you're born in sin, by the way, what do you do with baptism? You've got to baptize infants. Do you know when Constantine was baptized? <laughs> Just before he died. Yeah, I was like, I know it's a cleansing of sin, but I want to wait till the very last minute. <laughs> So I'm about to die. Baptize me now so I can't screw it up between <laughs> my baptism and my death. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Arjean? My great-grandmother was a midwife and there was such pressure and anxiety and desperation on the part of a young mother that just had a baby that was not going to live that they would baptize the baby. Yeah. The mother and the midwife would baptize yeah, got to get this done because, again, if we don't, here's this little, again, it goes back, to, and if they don't, they go into limbo. They're, they can't go to heaven. So, again, you get this sense of, it's this moment where it's like, unfortunately, this plan of happiness says very few people get happy. Most people are going to hell. But in truth, you know, although they know they're in limbo as a Catholic and, and as a boy, knowing some of those mothers that lost their children, they felt they was in hell. Yeah, it, well, exactly. So it's brutal. brutal. Yeah, and, and this is a loving God. You can see why people go, well, I don't need organized religion if this is going to send everybody to hell. That's why um, Moroni 8, for us Catholics, really talk to our heart when, when Mormon taught. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't don't want to miss out on that one, yeah. As a missionary, we were tracking along. I met a lady who was out working in the, her her front garden area, and uh, she said, "I I hate working. I hate religion." Yeah. Says my sons died, and the priest told me because they weren't baptized, they were going to hell. Yeah. And I said to her. I share something with you. <laughs> and her and her family joined the church. Yeah, cool. Gave them hope. Yeah, that that was missing, and you can see why the Savior is speaking to a young Joseph Smith, saying, "Their hearts are far from me. They teach for, as as my commandments, the philosophies of men." And he's right, and and it removed their hearts far from them. Okay, all right. Uh, by contrast. I saw this in uh, LDS Living. Latter-day Saint leaders have taught that mankind should rejoice with Adam and Eve that through the fall and the atonement of Jesus Christ, the way of eternal life has been opened to us. Instead of disdainfully looking at the fall as a tragedy, Latter-day Saints believe Adam and Eve's eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be one of the most theologically significant and fortunate events in human history. Such a contrast. Would there have been this world be different if they had not fallen? Yeah, it would be because we wouldn't be here. I mean, they, they if God set it up to multiply, did He say to multiply after they fell? Or no, that was one of the original commandments that to multiply and replenish the earth. Uh-uh. And, and Eve, in fact, afterwards, Eve's going to say it's a good thing that we fell. Because we fell, now we can have seed. Mm -hmm. In other words, we couldn't have seed until we fell. So, yeah, the world would be, there'd be like two people on it. And so, yeah, it was a real fortunate, it was a fortunate kind of thing. Adam fell that man may be. And Adam fell that men might be, yeah. How then did original sin become sex? 
Augustine. That's where that was started. That, so, so now they're spinning with that, and now they're kind of working off of that, and that's where that, that idea starts to develop, gains legs. Okay? All right. We need to stop. I got... Uh, what's after that? Oh, free agency and free will. Hold on. I, I, I can get through this. Okay. Free agency. Free will. What was the war in heaven fought over? Free, free will, right? The ability to do what we, what we want to be able to do. Okay. Martin Luther. Free will can be applicable to none but God. Free will is thrown prostrate and utterly dashed to pieces. Man's salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsel, endeavors, will, and works, and absolutely depends on the will, counsel, and pleasure of God only. That's why I say, so, uh, so some parts of Protestantism in trying to step back about what they felt like where the Catholic Church was abusing, some of the steps that they took were actually farther from the original church, not closer. That's why in some ways it's like I feel almost more of a kinship to Catholicism than I do on the Protestant side. Okay, yeah. So would you say then that Martin Luther was inspired or not inspired? I think he was inspired. I think he was... I think he had got a lot of inspiration. I think there was a sense recognizing the abuses and making a very courageous step to step forward. And then what happens as he begins to move forward, there's some other things that he does in, around slavery. And, and I mean, there's a few things that, that Luther was doing that... Not good. Yeah. So, I, so like all of us, it was kind of a mix. Luther was, a, we venerate him for what he did, but let's not, let's not miss what, what, where he took Christianity, and especially his followers. His followers took it farther than Luther did. Yeah. Oh, I say, I've heard that said in our church about salvation. You can do, you, you can't save yourself. Yeah. Philosophy. Right. And so it's. <laughs> yes. But we use our. If, if we say that within our church, is that bad? That we can't save ourselves? We can't. We're saved by grace. We're absolutely saved by grace. But by our, but by our will. We keep the commandments, and by the, by exercising that, our our nature becomes more like His. We begin to bring our our will in tune. But at the end of it, it is His. It's the atonement that empowers us to do so. It's His grace and atonement that changes us, and ultimately, it's His grace and atonement that make a. But we we never we we put ourselves in a place to have that happen. So when that is taught, though, that it is utterly beyond our power. Yeah. You see where it, you see where see where it enters in. That there is elements of this, but what this what this gets us to is this fact that we are. So I'm going to sing Amazing Grace, who's going to save a wretch like me. The, the the problem is it makes us wretches, as opposed to as we understand it, we are divine, and it opens up the grace opens up the divine spark in us and draws us near to him. But it was grace and the atonement that did that. Did you? I also think it has to do with like, the intent of God. When you look at the, the way he describes God, it is much more that he is yes. powerful, all menacing type figure who is going to control what we do and how we do it. Uh, I, I think that's well said. Because again, it's, at the end of the day, do we view, that's why I started with this quote, do we view an incredibly loving father who, is, who will do anything possible to bring his children home, no matter how long it takes? Or do we do one that he holds all the justice and Jesus is trying to protect us from his justice uh, and, oh, and rather than seeing them counsel together to figure out how to save their people? Yeah. When I, I read that, to me it's in conflict with uh, man is that he might have joy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because ultimately, uh, if it, without this understanding, then then the purpose of of coming to know Jesus and going to heaven is to sing praises to Him forever through eternities, and that's really 
Okay, and this, then the next year you do the same thing, and the next year you do the same thing. There's, there's no purpose to that other than to praise God, other than giving thanks for what He's creating in us. This type of thinking that leads into predestination. It does lead into predestination. God knew what He was going to do with you, and it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah, great, great point. Great point. Okay. Oh. No, I can't touch this one. Because <laughs> this, is, this is what we were just taught. Theosis is that man can become godlike. Because we do need to have a discussion on this. Because nothing gets us in trouble faster than pulling out one of Orson Pratt's quotes about the fact you're going to have your own planets and people them. <laughs> when was the last time you heard in General Conference Elder Holland going, I can't wait till I have my own planets. <laughs> But nothing shoots us in the foot faster with other Christianity than the, than the Mormons or the planet people. <laughs> that we want to avoid. So yeah, I want to, I'm going to go ahead and start with this one uh, next week. Uh, so next week we've got, that means we've got this, and then we're going to get into um, uh, America's Manifest Destiny, about how the, the setting around it, the fact that Joseph Smith's grandfathers on both sides fought in the revolution. Revolutionary War, and that there was a sense of freedom and and movement. Uh, Mount Tambora is going to show up here a little bit. That's going to give us 1815 and froze to death, and uh, it's where it was snowing in Vermont in the in the summer. Uh, froze out there all their crops, and then it'll get us to Palmyra, and and the burned out district that's up there. So, um, any final comments on on this? There's just so much, and we're just kind of drinking out of a fire hose. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you for being here. I'm grateful for you guys. Not today, but next week. It's, you, know, you talk about a wretch like me and all that. Yeah. Can we talk about repentance and how badly you're supposed to feel about <laughs> your action and not yourself? Yeah, we got to talk about that one. She says, "Can we talk about repentance um, and how bad we're supposed to feel?" And 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 somehow we got to get from away. Uh, I think move away from. Sin and repentance to wounding and, and healing, and, and and the and the emotional theological jump that that makes in in who we look for our healing. Okay, get away from penance. Really, is what we're trying to get away from. So, again, I, I'm I'm grateful for you guys. I just think we have a unique opportunity to do this, and no, we can't do this anywhere else. So, thank you for being here, um, and I leave this with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Eternal Father in heaven, we are so grateful for 